Elder Quentin L. Cook has been quoted as saying, the voices of people of faith need to be heard and amplified. When this is done, it creates a pause in the discourse and allows people to evaluate where they stand on a particular matter. Silence allows the rhythm of negativity to continue uninterrupted and unchallenged. This erodes the confidence of people of faith. Today, we talk with someone who is determined to speak up and who I can can say from personal experience, inspires and empowers others to do the same. Hal R. Boyd is a fellow of the Wheatley Institute at Brigham Young University. He is one of the founders of Public Square Magazine. He was formerly the opinion page editor for Deseret News and also previously worked for Church Public Affairs. He has a Juris Doctorate degree from Yale Law. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I'm thrilled to have my friend Hal Boyd here with me today. Hal, welcome. Thank you for having me, Morgan. Glad to be here. Well, I have to tell listeners before we get started that we have Hal partially to thank for this podcast, because when I was at Deseret News, one day Hal, who was the opinion editor at the time, came to me and was like, Morgan, I've got an idea for a podcast. And then he said, and I think you need to host it. And I was like, what? Like, I don't know anything about podcasting. So first of all, thank you for believing that I was capable of doing something that I did not think I was capable of. Well, thank you. It's generous to say that I had anything to do with it. Um, But if you're sincere, I, you know, I'm would willingly accept royalty checks and <laughs> any room. I'm still waiting on a royalty check, Hal. Um, but I also want to say, I think that the thing that I've always appreciated that you brought up that day when we talked about a potential podcast, is you said, I think something along the lines of, I'm probably putting words in your mouth, but you said something along the lines of, um, I believe that the decision to stay and to remain faithful is just as deliberate as the decision to leave. Um, and that it's actually a very thoughtful thing that this this decision to stay faithful, to remain active, is very deliberate for many people. And that is something that's always stuck with me. And it kind of served as the catalyst as we at LDS Living were brainstorming what we could do for this podcast. So thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. I think, you know, in our current environment, uh, in the current social context in, in which we live, uh, faith is increasingly a choice, and that's a powerful thing because it allows individuals to to come to a full realization of why they believe and what uh, what inspires their faith and what prompts them to be disciples and to carry on in a world that sometimes can be challenging uh, for believers. And so I think that's actually a great opportunity of this era is to be able to assertively uh, choose faith and understand one's beliefs. Um, and so it's in in some ways, many see it as a difficult environment for believers. But in that in that sense, it allows individuals to crystallize their faith because it is tried and and tested and in, in a way that makes it more profound and more po- powerful. Yeah, I do think I think that. I was just thinking about this this morning that I don't know. I remember being younger and hearing people talk about the pioneers and thinking 
man, I would never want to trade places with them. And still, I don't think I was cut out to push a handcart. But I was thinking this morning about how I, it's hard for me to imagine a time when it's harder to remain faithful. It just feels like we're being attacked from all sides. But as a result of that, I hope that my faith is stronger Hal, you are, let's start here. You're a graduate of Yale Law School, and it's interesting because you're an advocate for higher education. We've had conversations about this in the past, but you've also expressed the bias against religion within the academic sphere. You once wrote, the academics I know tend to be thoughtful, well-meaning types who on the whole expand knowledge and aspire to foster a pluralistic vision of society. But as New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof has observed, the one kind of diversity that universities disregard is ideological and religious. He continues, we're fine with people who don't look like us as long as they think like us. Why have you felt the need, Hal, to kind of speak out against that bias? Well, I will say that the norm is not the bias. The norm is, uh, at least in my own personal experience, has been very welcoming environments uh, in which faith is embraced and faith is included at the table in academic discussions. And that is, that's the norm. And it's very... Uh, positive and something that we should uh, uh, be grateful for, that we're in an environment where individuals of diverse cultures and religious traditions are able to participate in a robust conversation within the higher education, within the academy. Uh, However, there are situations in which there can be ideological biases within the academy. And I think one of those uh, tends to be uh, with regard to individuals whose traditional religious uh, have traditional religious perspectives or identify with religious traditions. And this can have the reason to speak out for this, the reason to to talk about it. Uh, it. It certainly doesn't help anyone to have a persecution complex. I don't think that serves anyone well, particularly one that isn't reflective of of the the much good and, and the way that many religious people are treated quite well within the academy. But uh, there are some human consequences. There are some disadvantages that people from religious backgrounds can encounter within the the so-called ivory tower of of higher education. And that's something worth talking about. It's something worth trying to work through and improve that situation. So uh, from just a Latter-day Saint perspective, and I know this is just because of my uh, membership in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I maybe have more Latter-day Saint examples, but of course there are, I'm sure, examples of other faith traditions I can imagine. But I, I've heard of at least just just two that I've kind of reported on anecdotally. Um, one, a university president who had been the president of a, of a Pac-12 school who was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints back in my reporting days had communicated to to me that, uh, you know, he, he wasn't for sure, you know, he, he didn't have concrete evidence, but he was almost certain that at least one job, uh, he was passed over for, for one job uh, specifically because of his his affiliation with the church. Another uh, example is a, a, a judge, a very distinguished judge, who himself is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, had received an application for a clerkship from a student, and 
part of those applications for clerkship, uh, judicial clerkship, involve a, an endorsement from professors from your law school. And one of the professors who had, who had endorsed this, this uh, candidate to be a, a clerk for this judge had, uh, the professor had noted, you know, the, the many qualities of this individual that they're hardworking, et cetera, but then came to a point within their endorsement where they said, but I should tell you that this person is uh, a Latter-day Saint. I think they used the term Mormon and said, in my experience, I found that Latter-day Saints lack the uh, intellectual creativity. However, they have very strong work ethic. Interesting uh, comment. It, it happened that the judge receiving this comment was himself a Latter-day Saint. Oh, goodness. So, of course, he wondered, you know, would this professor feel the same way about me, perhaps? And so, you know, let that pass. And then sometime later, uh, this this judge received a subsequent uh, application from a different candidate several years later, and the same professor uh, sent a recommendation. And yet again, brought up the fact that the candidate was a Latter-day Saint and made the same comment about Latter-day Saints. And so I think there are human consequences to having these biases, um, un- unfounded uh, biases with regard to religious individuals and, and relig- uh, individuals of any sort of background to have sort of a, uh, you know, maybe a, a misguided stereotypes with regard to uh, it's a it's a harmful thing. I think we as a, as a society have generally recognized that. And it's certainly the case with regard to biases against uh, religious individuals. And so uh, very much an advocate for higher education. I believe on the whole, it is a, uh, a welcoming environment to people of diverse cultures and ideological commitments and has been an immense boon in my life and uh, and something that I think culturally, hopefully as Latter-day Saints, as members of the church, we embrace the immense benefits of higher education and the aspirations to learn and to uh, truly grasp the understanding that the glory of God is intelligence and that these institutions are producing knowledge and disseminating knowledge and benefiting the world. But yet we can be clear-eyed about some of the challenges and difficulties and how to improve them. Yeah. I love that you point out that this is not something that's just unique to members of our faith. This is kind of believers across the board. Hal, you have a fascinating background to me. You, You were working for the church. You went to Yale Law School came back and worked as the opinion editor at Deseret News and then for the church again. You told me once in essentially the same position you had been in before. What led you to kind of take that route? Yeah, I I would say, you know, for those of us who are believers, we, you know, think there's something of a divinity that shapes our ends, that we aren't totally the masters of our own career trajectories in some <laughs> ways or the traje- trajectories of our lives. I think most of my plans uh, haven't really come to fruition, <laughs> how I map them out. And I'm just grateful to have been able to have opportunities to, uh, number one, be able to uh, have adequate employment to provide for the basic needs of life and to hopefully contribute to my employers and to 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 my community where I can and, and obviously my, my family and 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 faith. But but yes, I think there there have been instances or opportunities where I f- felt like the Lord has has moved me in certain directions where I could be uniquely helpful. And I think we all hopefully feel that in some way, whether it's in our, our specific church calling or our, our uh, life circumstances, that there are ways in which we are 
uniquely fitted to contribute to a particular environment, a particular time, a particular setting, particular community. And I hope that uh, myself included, that we're all attuned enough to know uh, where those contributions can be and when we and where we can we can make them uh, the uh, most effectively. I now am uh, teaching uh, down at Brigham Young University in the School of Family Life, teaching family law and family policy, and engaging in public scholarship efforts down there. And so that's uh, I, I'm very excited about that. I feel like that's a, a, a unique opportunity to contribute not only to the betterment of students uh, at BYU, but also hopefully to contribute a bit more to the public discourse in a positive way. I love that you're back in the academic space because I think that you have so much to offer students and and the rising generation. I am curious how having gone to law school and having been in that kind of academic space that we talked about before, how do you feel like that changed you, shaped you, and allowed you to come back and be even more of an advocate for our faith. Yeah, well, you know, certainly law school is is a place where you learn advocacy, and there are different kinds of advocacy. You know, in the legal environment, I think most of us uh, traditionally have a picture of sort of a, an attorney who is in a courtroom making an argument for someone who's on trial or either as the defense or the, or the uh, prosecution. But advocacy can transcend uh, the courtroom and can enter in many different realms. I I think it's important, you know, every every person should be an advocate in some sense, uh, in, in 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 for themselves, for their communities, for for the things that they deeply care about. And I think advocacy can come in all sorts of different forms. Uh, much in the same way we think of an artist as having different different canvas. Some will be more inclined toward watercolors. Others will use oils. Some will engage in sculpting. Some might uh, use uh, uh, design or and and just as there are different formats, I think for 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 art, there are different ways of of advocating, and it doesn't need to be just uh, purely the purview of sort of our traditional sh- maybe shrill attorney out in front of the cameras making some sort of press statement, but it can be just uh, individuals who are communicating with own, their own sphere of influence about things that matter to them. And it doesn't need to be in a, a way that comes across as salesmanship or uh, badgering in any way, but can be just a genuine or an authentic voice with regard to um, deeply held convictions. And so hopefully I can do that in, in my own in my own realm, in my own way, uh, to individuals for whom uh, it may be beneficial and for whom I may have a particular resonant voice in some way. Yeah. One of the things that you're working on at BYU, you've been involved in a joint project between the Elizabeth McCune, am I saying that right, McCune Institute, and the John A. Witzow Foundation. You helped create a website called Public Square Magazine. First of all, how can you tell us kind of the idea behind this website and what what inspired you all to start it? Sure. So first of all, uh, Elizabeth McCune is, uh, some may not know that name. Elizabeth McCune was uh, a, a figure in the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, who lived in Salt Lake City. Her husband was a noted 
industrialist here in Utah, and she <clears throat> was a, a very active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Her husband, maybe uh, not, not quite as much, uh, but she lived in the noted McCune Mansion, which overlooks Temple Square. If anyone been on Temple Square, they'll see the McCune Mansion sort of looming over on Main Street. And uh, she had the opportunity, I believe, if I recall the story correctly, when her son was uh, uh, serving in a mission in Europe, she went over and took a trip to Europe. And during that time, there was a, a particular book that was out that was didn't paint Latter-day Saints in perhaps the most uh, a flattering light. And there's an individual who had been a former member of the church who was who had written this book and had kind of been hawking it and selling it around town. And the one of the uh, one of the main sort of points of the book was that uh, people who are listening to the Latter Day Saints in Europe should should have discount their message because of the way that the church in Utah uh, treats women, and that and this is uh, you know post uh, plural marriage in the state of Utah, but. But nonetheless, this was the argument that this this former member of the church was making. And so the Elizabeth McCune, who was visiting from Utah, who was a native of Utah and a prominent a woman of, 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 of some noted reputation for philanthropy and uh, I believe participation in sort of literary circles, uh, she was on tour and, and was asked to uh, to give kind of a, a lived experience testimonial with regard to her life experience as being a Latter-day Saint woman in Utah and and what that was like and, and what are the real facts of how uh, women are treated within the community. And so she was able to get up in an environment in which there's a, a sizable crowd between of uh, both members of the church and non-members of the church in which she gave sort of an authentic testimonial of being a Latter-day Saint woman in Utah. And she was so effective and so compelling as, as a speaker and both as a, an authentic voice of someone who, who actually had the facts, who had, you know, was, the, the, was living the reality of being a, a woman in Utah. And she uh, communicated you know, the opportunities that are afforded women, the, the life of the mind uh, that, that uh, women were engaged in at, at the time in Utah, and her station of of being sort of equally yoked uh, to to her husband in responsibilities and opportunities, and uh, it was such a compelling testimony that the I believe if I'm getting all the facts right of the story that the presiding authority uh, who uh, was present at, uh, made a request to Salt Lake City to send sisters out to the area because they were they they were so effective. Uh, at communicating the gospel. And this, as I'm told, uh, sort of began the nascent stages of, of, uh, of uh, sister missionary work in the church. And so uh, a group of individuals kind of got together and have um, been engaged in, in the, starting the McCune Institute and then the, and, uh, along with the John A. Woodstow Foundation, which is based out of University of Southern California, of uh, starting this publication, Public Square Magazine, is a bit of homage to to Elizabeth McCune in a way of saying this is a space in which individuals from different walks of life who are believers, who are uh, people of goodwill, people of conscience, can participate in the public square, hence the name Public Square Magazine, and do so authentically, or at least authentic to their faith traditions, their their lived experience 
to their deepest core convictions. And so this is kind of the effort we've been engaged uh, in there. And we've, uh, we've, we've really enjoyed a lot of the contributions that have come and unexpected uh, individuals have sort of come out of the woodwork and written very thoughtful essays on a variety of topics that weave um, faith and uh, a contemporary life in, in ways that are quite rich and nuanced and uh, inspiring. And so it's a, a great project that I've been blessed to participate in in a small way, although there are many others who, who are involved and deserve credit for all they've contributed to that thus far. Yeah. Well, I think it's such a great idea, and I think it shows that there are many different schools of thought surrounding believers, that it doesn't mean one thing that we've loved about this podcast is that it's shown how many different people with different life experiences and different thoughts can all participate in the same faith. And I think that Public Square is trying to do the same thing and showing that this is actually a very thoughtful thing. Belief is thoughtful. One thing I loved in, a, in an op-ed that you wrote for Deseret News, you quoted Elder Holland, and Elder Holland was talking about Neil A. Maxwell, who was being uh, recognized for his scholarship And obviously, this is after Elder Maxwell had passed away. But he says, the wonderful thing with Neil and the thing I want for us is that it didn't have to come down to a choice between intellect and spirit. In a consecrated soul, they would be aligned beautifully, a perfect fit, a precise overlay. And I think that's kind of what you all are trying to do. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I think it's kind of showing that overlay of intellect and spirit and how those two things together can create like this beautifully consecrated soul. Would you agree with that, Hal? Oh, certainly. I think, you know, our, uh, our, our president, Abraham Lincoln, uh, echoing the, the New Testament and Christ's words that a house divided, you know, cannot stand. And so if we bifurcate ourselves, you know, here's my academic self and here's my spiritual self, or here's my uh, my, you know, salsa del- dancing self, uh, <laughs> to throw a reference to Sean Spicer in there. Uh, and here's my, uh, here's my, you know, business self. Uh, I don't think that is particularly healthy. I mean, I think we have different ways of presenting ourselves and different ways of communicating in different arenas, and that's perfectly fine. But ultimately, we are one person. And when we walk out of our uh, houses of worship, and we walk into an academic environment. We we need to if we are uh, if we are being genuine, uh, we 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 are we are the same person. And those beliefs inform the way that we uh, read texts, the way that we articulate our views, the way that we approach our scholarship. And it should inform all of those things for the better. It should make us better scholars. It should make us better advocates. It should make us better husbands and wives and teachers and community members and parents. And so I think it behooves us uh, to allow faith to suffuse all that we're engaged in, particularly in the life of the mind, as kind of talked about earlier, you know, the glory of God is intelligence. I think God wants us to to have that 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 marriage, that welding of the life of the mind and the life of the spirit as they ultimately become one. As as he says, you have disciple scholars, but in the end the hyphens come off and it's just disciple. Yeah. One thing that I, well, I want to touch on a few things, if it's okay with you, that were 
that were written. Did you write this uh, this piece that kind of explains Public Square? The I like was, introductory. I was, thing? Uh, yeah, I was one of the writers. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk as if you wrote it, but we will just go ahead and establish multiple people. Cannot confirm or deny. Perfect. Great. <laughs> um, okay, so you talk about a theologian who suggested that Christians lost the 1970s debate around abortion because they didn't participate sufficiently in the larger public conversation about sex and related topics. And thus, by seeding, in quotes, by seeding the terms of the debate, the debate got framed in ways that made the failure of conservative Christianity a foregone conclusion, end quote. Into that kind of vacuum, it's been far too easy for terms of public conversation to be established in a manner that occasionally paints faith as incomprehensible or even threatening, rather than as an essential aspect of life for most of humanity, deserving of studied consideration. Hal, why do you think it's important for us to engage in conversations surrounding these kind of hot topics? And what are the most important topics facing believers today? So I think it's important to engage in these topics because the public square has traditionally been an arena where individuals come to exchange ideas and communicate and exchange goods and all sorts of other things. But it has been the creator of norms. And so uh, the Aristotle, the philosopher Aristotle, talked about different kinds of knowledge and different different forms of, uh, of, of wisdom. And one of them he talks about is called practical wisdom or phrenesis. And he, he says that individuals come to the city center, they come to the public square, they come to Athens in his world, uh, and they engage with one another. And from engaging with one another and learning of each other's stories and hearing different perspectives, we shape sort of public virtue. And those values, the public virtues, are what we aspire toward. That's what we aspire toward in politically. That's what we aspire toward personally. And so if religious individuals vacate that space, decide to stay home whilst others are engaged in the public square, whilst others are having the conversations in the uh, uh, the Athenian uh, 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 town square, then essentially a, a part of uh, the part of defining virtue is lost. A, a part of defining what is our what are our moral paragons is is lost. A voice is missing in that discussion, in that virtue shaping. And so I would hope that we would all want to. Uh, in 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 a reflection of Lehi's dream of per- partaking of this wonderful fruit from uh, from the tree and wanting to share it with others, that we want to go to the public square and we want to say, you know what, we have something that is is remarkable and and worthy uh, of of sharing and worthy of uh, discussing, and uh, we 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 want to be there, we want to participate, we want to be able to communicate that with others, and that will help. Uh, shape that will help frame the terms of the debate, I, I think, in a way that will leaven society, will improve society, will lift it, will uh, appeal to our better angels, uh, to keep quoting Lincoln today. <laughs> but I think that's why it's so vital, it's so important, why I care deeply about uh, trying to 
encourage and myself uh, where possible to engage in in the public conversation. Yeah. So Hal, I imagine that some people are probably feeling like me right now where they're like, of course, you should engage in the public square because you are brilliantly smart, very articulate. I, on the other hand, kind of an idiot. And so I think (laughs) that one thing that maybe keeps people from engaging in these conversations and participating is that they may feel inadequate. What is your advice in how to better work to articulate our beliefs? How can we become better and more comfortable and confident in that? Okay, well, first, let me dispel the notion that uh, you're not articulate and shouldn't participate (laughs) in the public square because that's not correct. Um, But in terms of uh, how individuals can participate. I would say, you know, the example of the the master of Jesus Christ is is a great uh, as as in all things is is our our paragon here the the individual we should look to and the way he communicated truths the way he communicated his gospel uh, and 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 the things that are important uh, essential for us to to uh, to um, participate in the plan of salvation fully and to. Uh, to live the Christian virtues, he did so in 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 ways that were very applicable to the people of his time and the audience uh, to to whom he was speaking. So he spoke in parables. He talked about sheep and and oil, and he talked about lilies and wheat and tares and things that were seeds and were very applicable to the individuals of their time. That these were germane topics to their lived experience. They were part of the cultural milieu in which they they existed. An individual who was of uh, the pharisaical class or the lawyerly class or the uh, the governmental class uh, was it was as, as accessible to them as the as the pauper, as the person begging in front of the temple. And so it was able to communicate uh, things that were widely, uh, uh, widely, they were widely discernible, and people could grasp them and and use them. and And there were layers to them. You know, there was there was layers. Those who had ears to hear, but so there there are multiple ways to understand them. So I mean, he is he is the true master in terms of how how to communicate one's faith, how to communicate one's core beliefs. Uh, but I think each individual, you know, we, we don't all have the gifts of, of Jesus Christ, that none of us have the gifts of Jesus Christ. And so we have to look to what are our specific spiritual gifts, what are our unique ways. And for some people, that participation in the public square may be the, their incredible gift of of song or of, you know, of, of music, of uh, playing the violin or the piano. For another person, uh, it will be being able to articulate stories and parables and talk in narrative form. And then, of course, there will be some who will maybe be uh, have the ability or the specific voice to be able to articulate beliefs in a more uh, what we might traditionally think of as uh, a public discourse arena in which they're maybe writing op-eds or essays or articulating their views on CNN or MSNBC. And so I think looking for what is your specific voice and what is the audience that resonates with that voice it may be that writing a blog about your uh, parenting of a child and taking really interesting pictures of the various foods that you eat and the shoes that you buy becomes a, a means of communicating and participating uh, robustly in, in, in the discourse and reaching people for whom you have a specific a gift and a resonant voice. And for others, it may be uh, something completely different. It may be your ability to quilt and that you uh, that you have a community around quilting or something else. And so I think 
thinking through what are my unique spiritual gifts and how what is my voice and how does that voice resonate and and then thinking about the canvas which is uh, your canvas of choice you know are you an oil painter or are you a watercolor kind of a person and then trying to trying to leverage that voice in a way that um that uh, again uh, is done in, in 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 a manner that is as appealing rather than shrill or is is a great story from i believe from president packer and in, in the book teach ye diligently in which he talks about uh, uh giving an example to young missionaries about sharing the gospel and he says he he uses this example i i presume i i think he actually did use this example where he would bring out a a platter of uh of cake uh, at a missionary sort of zone conference if I'm getting the story correctly, and uh, he would ask who wants you know some cake, and when someone would raise their hand, he would then take a piece of the cake and throw that at them, and you know people are very shocked. This is not a very you know this is not an not super conventional, thing. not conventional, not what you might expect. And then he'd he'd bring out another cake on a platter with uh, sort of utensils and very well adorned, and say, okay, now who wants to eat this cake? And so he then would make sort of the obvious point that. Well, boy, the cake is the same. It has the same ingredients, but but it sure is more pleasant to receive a cake on a platter than receive it thrown at one's face. And so I think, you know, the message can be many ways similar, uh, one of, of hope and one of charity and, and Christian goodwill at a time of division, a message of, of resilience through the gospel of Jesus Christ when we face so many, uh, see so many falter who need help and ability to reach out and to try to lift at a time when there are many whose arms are hanging down. And that that hopeful message, that that message of Jesus Christ can resonate not only because the substance of it is so powerful and, 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 and so alluring, but also that we as messengers can provide an adequate vessel so that that message is received uh, rather than being felt as though cake is perhaps thrown at us. Yeah. I love what you said about how, you know, people have different gifts and being able to communicate the things that they believe in, being able to reach people. And I think that sometimes we view our gifts as less than. I think it's kind of like how we're our own worst critic. We we view our gift as, oh, well, all I can do is sew quilts or whatever. But to somebody that may be exactly what they need. And so I love that you touched on that. Hell, I asked this earlier, but I didn't get your answer. Um, What do you think are some of the most important issues? I think religious freedom, obviously a big one, but what are some of the most important issues facing us as believers in Jesus Christ today? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's certainly a lot of political things that one could talk about, but I think as at least personally, and I assume this might apply to others, I feel as though perhaps one of the most pressing issues with regard to uh, contemporary Christianity in in the West, in the United States in particular, for those who, for whom their basic needs are met and they're able to have a modicum of comfort with regard to uh, some of the elements of life and and that they're, they're not going hungry and they're, they're not having to toil in a manner that may be detrimental to one's health such as to provide the necessities of life. For those individuals, the challenge is living up to, I think, the moral expectation that one has if those needs have been met. 
so in other words, in previous epochs, you have uh, the, the many Christians have had to either face persecution, pretty substantial persecution in the case of Latter-day Saints, the, the, the pioneers. We think of the pilgrims as being religious exiles, having to go into the Western reaches of the worlds that they understood and knew, and having to be in pretty dire circumstances in which many of them would pass during, during their time in the, the first years of being in New England or a New England. And we think of those, those types of sacrifices and those types of, of toils, and they're pretty significant. And so once those necessities of life, if you have general protection from the elements and you have uh, your, your necessities met in terms of not going hungry, well then as a Christian, you have a high moral obligation, not just to watch Netflix or, or, or now Disney Plus, I guess, mm-hmm. is the, but to strive to contribute to your communities in ways that are reflective of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the example of the master. And I think that is a pretty tall order and a pretty high expectation that we all, as vowed believers or as uh, self-described Christians, uh, must live up to. And it can be quite hard to do that. And I think that it wears on our conscience as a community, as individuals, and I would say as a nation, when we don't achieve that, when perhaps instead we use the immense advantages that we've been given to perhaps just binge one more show or take in you know, one more luxury cruise, perhaps rather than engaging in the hard work of being disciples who are contributing to the world and our communities and our families in ways of befitting uh, the Christian tradition. And this is certainly something that I <laughs> think I grapple with. I'm not saying that uh, I've somehow achieved that, that high that moral apex or apogee, but I'm, I'm, you know, I think it's something that we're all struggling with, both individuals as a community and then as a nation. Now, with that said, there are many, many Christians for whom uh, there are other much more pressing circumstances then uh, that they have to deal with the lived realities of trying to provide for their own families, uh, survive day to day, live in circumstances where there are, are high levels of persecution or high levels of incivility. And, and there are many lived realities that aren't as comfortable. And so I think it's the, the acute, uh, the pressing issues for Christians or for believers uh, of many different stripes are going to depend on the particular circumstances. But I feel like um, for those for whom they have maybe a stable living and some stable circumstances, and we all face various challenges, that's, that's a pressing issue, is to live up to the immense blessings and privileges and have our gratitude, express that gratitude through our actions, as Christ admonishes to, to feed the sheep. Once we realize who Christ is, he tells us to feed the sheep. That's what he tells Peter three times. And so are we living up to that? Are we feeding the sheep or are we we feeding ourselves in, in, in many ways and enjoying the technological advances and modern accoutrements? Uh, or are we using those uh, to more fully live as Christians? And I certainly don't think I've lived up to that, but I'm hopefully striving to a little bit each day. Yeah. Thank you. How? Why are you grateful to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints? Well, I think my faith, uh, my membership in the church, is perhaps a slightly uh, and less orthodox, if I can use that term, 
in in the sense that I grew up sort of in a more agnostic kind of a, a situation. I, you know, I saw that my you know my parents were believers, but I thought you know say it's 50-50 on whether this is you know this is true or not, and so I'll just try to appease my my parents and live a a good life, and that way I can you know, get by okay in, in my adolescence and I won't be, uh, you know, lose my allowance or something, so to speak. I don't know. I remember if I had allowance, but the, the general idea was I could sort of get by okay if I sort of towed the line more or less and then was able to sort of uh, live 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 the way I, I wanted to without really much thought toward um, weightier matters or weightier questions and generally took sort of an agnostic position, maybe more leaning toward a hedonistic, atheistic perspective of it's unlikely that there's a, a you know, a, a, there's unlikely there's a God or a personal God. And But I didn't put, I don't think, the substantial thought that such a question would warrant at, at that age. But uh, I think coming from that as a basis point, and this is not to say that I wasn't brought up in the faith or my parents didn't do everything, you know, I mean, they were remarkable parents and very faithful. And, and I, I had a grounding and understanding of the, of the religious tradition, thankfully, because of the goodness and the sacrifices of my parents and my family. But that was sort of my general sort of position as an, as an adolescent. And then, but over time, uh, there were things that would chip away at that perspective. So you would have encounters with the divine, uh, you know, and they were initially very small, but enough to get me out to to Brigham Young University for a summer term instead of going to another university, which was a good university, but probably had a, a different cultural context. And then from that to get me onto uh, a mission. And then you have uh, you know, these, these, daily in, these daily encounters, and I don't want to treat them lightly, which are so significant uh, with the divine that there's no, I mean, I would even say rational explanation other than a benevolent heavenly father who is engaged and touching the lives of individuals and touch you know working through me working in my life to bless the lives of others and blessing other lives and helping other lives to bless my own and when one encounters that when one encounters uh, miracles and I don't use that term lightly one can't help but then to fully divest themselves of the prior perspective and sort of shed the scales of their eyes to see that in fact yes you know shockingly yes this is this is true and that these things uh, miracles are are a reality and that that the basis for belief is is rooted in in kind of a what we would call in theological terms incremental fideism where faith supersedes rationality in some cases but does so based on uh, encounters with the divine divine evidence that one uh, feels through their their lived experiences by encountering God's love and encountering the miracles that he puts in our path. One thinks of Paul on the road to Damascus with one paradigm and thinking that they're uh, aligned and doing God's will by persecuting the Christians, the followers of Christ. And Paul then has a, a quite abrupt 180 when he encounters Christ on the road to Damascus. And we may not all have the same encounter with Christ, but we all have our moments where we in, we encounter the divine. And those do provide a basis for faith, and our testimonies are bolstered by the encounter with the Holy Spirit in which we feel in, in profound ways and sometimes ineffable ways a divine love that transcends uh, anything that we can 
anything we can compare it to in in our normal everyday uh, lives. And so these things become profound building blocks for our faith. And so for me, you know, many, there are some who kind of have faith journeys where they are all in, so to speak, from the beginning and have been brought up in, in a particular way. And then they encounter something that then they are forced to grapple with. And that becomes something that chips away at their faith. My experience was quite the opposite. Whereas uh, I sort of came from a basis of non, non-belief or sort of a, 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 you know, I don't want to discount the, the great faith that was instilled in me from parents and from other religious leaders. But there was sort of a, a, a robust skepticism, I guess, from a young age to where that skepticism was slowly chipped away by showing forth moments of faith in which that faith was then confirmed uh, through remarkable experiences. And that builds a kind of foundation of faith where one has a a deep dedication and conviction and uh, one that I think hopefully is something that others can feel and hopefully I can in some way try to encourage others to seek that that sort of uh, feelings out. I mean, by no means do do I would I say that I have sort of uh, uh, all of these things figured out, but uh, I'm I'm trying my best, and I I do feel very blessed to have had a testimony, and I think many religious believers have that as well through their own encounters with the divine, and and the Lord communicates sort of in unique ways to unique individuals in their circumstances and in their language and in the things that resonate with them. And that's certainly been the case for me. Thank you so much for sharing that. I never knew that about your growing up. So that's really interesting. As we wrap up, I just want to read one, well, I guess two quotes from this Public Square magazine, and then I'll let you have the last word with our all-in question. But you said, despite evidence of the social benefits of religion to society, it's not entirely uncommon to hear assertions that faith communities are little more than modern barriers to progress, or that religion is already too prevalent an influence in society. We reply that you can never have enough tolerant and reasoned voices sharing what they believe to be true and beautiful. You can never have enough souls striving toward the divine. And then later you say the body of believers must now more than ever put pen to paper, click conviction into every keystroke, stand athwart history and belt come come ye saints until in fact all is well. Hal, what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, I think being all in to me means stumbling, making mistakes, maybe having uh, faltering, but learning from those experiences and using those experiences to propel us to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to have a greater appreciation for the ways, the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. One thinks of Peter, who had his moments, had his moments of failure, of faltering, but those moments were used to crystallize a more firm foundation, were used to propel a more compelling Christian voice, even the rock upon which the kingdom would be uh, built and led. One thinks of Paul, who was, again, leading the charge to persecute the followers of Christ, and yet uh, his experience with the divine was able to alter his life circumstances such that he would dedicate the rest of his days 
to preaching the gospel who once persecuted. And so I think being all in means that we're willing to recognize our fallibility and also recognize our faith and our the realization that we can be made strong, that our that our flaws can be purified and can be refined through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I hope uh, when we feel like we're all out rather than we're all in, that we can still uh, come to a, a greater communion with the divine and allow that to be the, the fire, the fuel for our faith. And so I guess that's how I would define uh, being all in. Thank you, Hal. Thank you. A huge thank you to Hal Boyd for joining me on today's episode. You can read more from Hal, and you should, on the Public Square Magazine website, publicsquaremag.org. As always, thank you to Derek Campbell from Mix at Six Studios for his work on this episode, and thank you for listening. We love and appreciate you more than you know and hope you have a great week.